Amen. Uh, well, good morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Scott Hickox, and it's an honor to be with you this morning to open uh, the Word. I'm here uh, because Pastor Tim is on sabbatical. If you're, if you're not aware of that, uh, he, is, he and Melody are away for about eight weeks on sabbatical, and uh, I pray that the Lord is giving them rest, and I would just encourage you to be prayerful for them as well in this season that God's given them a time of really rest and refreshment so that when they return, uh, they'll be ready to re-engage in the life of the church. I, I think the leadership team at one point said um, that they have a place on the website where you could send encouraging notes, and I believe I'm going to give you the email address. I'm, my encouragement to you is to encourage Tim and Melody while they're away. Uh, this is something that they can uh, read at a later point, but oh, there it is. Is it up there? Oh, no. Here it is. LCF leadership team at lcfliberty.org. Uh, but take a moment and just drop them a note and encourage them. Uh, and maybe another encouragement would just be no. Um, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so this whole staff, uh, I hope you realize how fortunate and blessed we are to have the team that we have here at LCF, and so take a moment just to encourage them. This is a season, this is a month where it's specifically designed for us to encourage them, so I'm just encouraging you uh, to do that, all right? Well, before we start, I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question. Um, have, you ever, have you ever missed out uh, on an opportunity and then later regretted it? Ever missed out an opportunity and then later uh, regretted it. My, my family moved to, to Northwest Arkansas in 1965, and I was, I was one year old at the time, so my memory's a little fuzzy about some of the details here, but um, they moved there in, in 1965, and my parents decided that they wanted the kids to, to grow up in church. Uh, my dad had grown up Lutheran, and my mom had grown up Baptist, and neither was sort of willing to go to the other's church, and so they made the only uh, rational decision you can make. They decided to become Presbyterians, all right? And so they, they visited the First Presbyterian Church there in Bentonville, Arkansas. And in those days, when you visit a church for the first time, what would happen was that some members from the church would actually come to your house uh, and sort of follow up on the visit. They would come and see how you're doing, get to know you a little bit. I mean, that's just what happened in those days. And so my parents, after they made the visit uh, to the church, that they were, were visited by two members in the church by the name of Sam and Helen Walton. Um, and I don't know if you recognize that name, but Sam Walton is the founder of, of Walmart stores. And so the Walton family became friends of, of our family. My, my dad ran a drugstore there in town. He was right on the square. And about really just two doors down was where uh, one of the original Walton five and dime stores was, okay? Um, fast forward about, about a dozen years. My dad's store is still uh, on the square, same place. The Walton five and dime has moved a few blocks away to a bigger building, and now it's called Walmart. And... By now, there, there's about 250 uh, Walmart stores. There's still one Rose Drug store, okay? And in 1978, Sam decided uh, that he wanted to put pharmacies in, in all of the Walmart stores. Uh, there's 250 at the time, again. And so he, he came to my dad, and he said, uh, Rex, I'd like you to come and, and run the pharmacy division uh, at Walmart. He was, asking, he was offering the job to run pharmacies at all the Walmart stores. Now, keep in mind, it's 1978. My dad's running a local hometown pharmacy. He's got charge accounts. He's got free delivery. And, and he says, Sam, you know, I, I just don't think people want to come to a discount store to buy their prescriptions. And so he turned him down. Uh, about 11,000 stores later and 10 stock splits later, it turns out uh, people will actually go to Walmart to get their prescriptions filled. <laughs> right? Um, now, my dad, I didn't, I didn't hear this story until just about 10 years ago, and my dad would have never survived in corporate America. He would have hated it. Uh, I think he knows that, but I have to believe there are times he looks back and wonders, what if, right? And so what about you? Have you, have you 
turn down a job offer that later you've looked back and wondered, what if? Or maybe, maybe there was a concert or a, a sporting event that you could have gone to, you decided not to go, and later you heard it was amazing, and then you, you regretted uh, not going. Some of you may have missed out on a significant opportunity, but, but the truth is that, that most things in life you can, you can miss out on, and in the end, it won't matter that much. But today we're going to look at an opportunity that if you miss out on this one, you won't just regret it for a while, you will end up regretting it forever. Our passage is in Luke chapter 13, so if you have a Bible or device, if you want to turn to Luke chapter 13, you can open it up. We're going to look at these verses. I realized in the first service as I was preaching, I think, I mean, I think I knew, but I didn't realize, but this is a pretty heavy passage. This is a difficult passage, and so in a moment I'm just going to pray that the Lord sort of prepares our hearts for that, but... Um, Anyway, that's where we're going. The big idea up front before we read the passage is this. Jesus loves us so much that he warns us about the future and he welcomes us into his presence. That's, that's the big idea. So let's read this passage from Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 22. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able, once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open for us. And he will answer you, I don't know who you are or where you're from. And then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves thrown out. They will come from east and west and from north and south to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. It's the word of the Lord. Let me, let me just pray for us. Father, thank you for your word and its truth, and thank you even for hard words uh, that you give us. This morning, I pray you'll give us hearts to see the warnings and the welcome that you offer. God, you're kind to us like that. Soften our hearts, humble us, just enable us to hear from you. Get me out of the way, and I pray you would speak. Um, I pray your spirit would move in this place now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Luke tells us that, that Jesus is going through these, these towns uh, in these villages on his way to Jerusalem. And context is really important when we study the Bible, when we're reading the Bible. Uh, and so if you haven't been a part of uh, what's been going on, we've been working through the book of Luke in this series. And so I'll just tell you that, that Jesus isn't just randomly sort of going through these towns and villages. He's on his way to Jerusalem for a purpose. He's going there for a reason. And Luke told us earlier that actually Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem. Again, he's going there for a purpose. He knows that he's going there um, to die. And he's been trying just of late to, to help his followers begin to understand that. He wants them to know what's going to happen. And understandably, some of them are saying, wait a minute. If that's going to happen there, then, then go another direction. Don't go there. The truth is, a lot of people find that difficult to understand. I mean, why would the creator of the universe, the one who's, who's sovereign over all things, why would he shrink himself down to become a human? 
an ordinary man living in Palestine in the first century, and, and even if he was going to do that, why would he go to the cross to die? I mean, it's crazy. And in fact, a lot of people, when they, when they think about that, they just they don't go any further because they think the whole idea is absurd. You see, that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. Because all the other religions of the world tell you things you have to do, ladders you have to climb, steps you have to take to get up to God. But Christianity tells the story of a God who came down to us, who became one of us so that he could swap places with us on the cross. And you see, there on the cross, he suffered and died to pay the penalty for all the things that we do wrong so that we'll never have to suffer for them ourselves. And he does all this, um, he does it all willingly because he loves us so, so passionately. I mean, church, that is, that's why it's called good news. That is good news this morning. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He, he died the death that we deserved so that we could have a relationship with God. And what that means is whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever, whoever you've done it with, Everything wrong in our lives is paid for on the cross. Jesus paid the price for it so we don't have to if we simply believe in Him. And so He's trying to get people to begin to understand this, that, that the King has come to usher in His kingdom. And on the way, a guy asked this question. He says, hey Jesus, will, will just a few be saved? And as Jesus often does, he doesn't answer the question directly. He tells a story. I think Pastor Tim has pointed this out previously. This has happened before in the book of Luke. But a single person, in this case a man, asks a question. And Luke tells us that Jesus responds to the crowd. Because I think he knows the whole crowd needs to hear the answer. And thankfully for us, it's recorded in the Bible, passed down to us, I think because we need to hear it as well. And so Jesus responds by saying, the door is narrow and many will not be able to get in. And so in one sense, you could say he does answer the question. But I think he has a bigger point to make here. I think what Jesus is saying to the crowd and to us is that the question is not really about the few. The question is about you. Will you be saved? See, it's the most important decision you'll ever face. The most important door that you'll ever walk through. It's this door that Jesus talks about. Just like your house has a door on it, the kingdom of God has a door as well. And God dwells on one side and we are on the other. And we have to pass through this narrow door to experience His kingdom. And here's the challenge in the life that we live in today. There's a lot of doors to choose from. There's doors that promise that, that money will make you happy. Doors that promise that sex will make you happy. That your kids will make you happy. There's doors that say all roads lead to heaven. See, there's all kinds of doors promising all kinds of things. And which door will you choose? Again, really, there's not a more important question in all the universe. I mean, this question is so important that I'm hoping that as we leave today that, that you will think about Jesus' words here every time you 
step over a threshold, every time you open a door, every time you turn a knob, that you'll remember this door that Jesus talks about. The most important door. It is a narrow door. It's a door of faith. It's a door that separates us from God, life from death, heaven from hell. That's the door. And some people say as a result of that, and maybe, maybe you're one of them this morning, but, but some people will say, well, that's, that's what I have against Christianity. It is too exclusive. It's too narrow-minded. See, it's true. There is only one door that leads to God. Jesus says the only way to the Father is through Him. So in that sense, it is exclusive. But Christianity is also the most inclusive religion in the world. Because everyone is welcome to pass through the door. See, in some religions, you have to be a particular race or a particular ethnicity. All tribes and nations are welcome to come in this door. Some religions say you have to speak Hebrew or or Aramaic. All languages can pass through this door. Some say you have to be smart, have degrees. Even the simple are welcome here. Rich, poor, black, white, young, old, simple, wise, all are welcome to pass through the door. And even more amazing than that, Christianity is so inclusive. I think this is the most amazing thing about it. The undeserving, the ill-deserving, even the enemies of God are welcome to pass through this door. The only qualification to enter is to admit that you're not qualified. That's it. And if you're here this morning and you have never admitted that to the Lord, listen, just just tell Him, God, I don't have it all figured out. I've screwed this up. I need your help. He will welcome you in. That's the good news of Christianity. As I think we're going to see a little later, part of the man who asked the question, part of his problem, I think, and maybe part of our problem too, is that we're tempted to think that we're qualified. I mean, we might not ever say this out loud, but deep in our hearts, there's a temptation to think that we actually are qualified for this. And so the warning from Jesus is, forget about the few for a minute. What about you? Now, his first words might seem a bit confusing. In verse 22, he starts by saying, make every effort. And some of you, particularly if you've grown up around church, you're probably thinking, well, wait a minute, Scott. I I thought Christianity was all of grace. I thought we couldn't earn our salvation. I thought it was a free gift. What's Jesus talking about here? Listen, it's true. Salvation is a free gift of God. We can't do anything to earn it. It's all of grace. That is the glory of Christianity. So what does he mean here when he says, make every effort? Uh, Some of your translations might say strive. Um, The word in the original language has the idea of a physical exercise or or competition. It's almost a a struggle, to agonize. That's what the word means. Maybe this will help. Um, imagine, Imagine that you're given two free tickets to the Super Bowl when the Chiefs were playing, okay? You're going to be part of a larger group to go to the game, but your tickets are free. And when you get to the game, you realize that the group of people that you're with, they've all been to the Super Bowl a whole bunch of times before. They're really just there for the party. 
They're happy to hang out sort of on the concourse. They're going to eat the free food. And every once in a while when it's convenient, they might look up at the big screen. But they're satisfied right where they are. And you're thinking, wait a minute. I might never get this chance again. I'm going to my seat. And so you fight your way through the crowd, right? You don't care if you have to step over chairs. You don't care about the sticky stuff on the bottom of your shoes. You're going to your seat. You're going to make every effort to get as close to the action as you can. Why? Because you love the chiefs and you want to get as close as you can. Your seats were free, but you were willing to do whatever it took to get there. They were worth the effort. See, the crowd Jesus was talking to were mostly Jewish. They they would have been steeped in tradition. They grew up in the synagogue. They knew the prayers. They, They brought their sacrifices to the temple. I mean, listen, if anyone was in, they were in. Or so they thought. What about us? I mean, we come to church, right? We sing the songs. Um, we go to small group. We, we pray. We read our Bible. I mean, I mean, when it's convenient, we do. But are we making every effort? Every effort. Again, not to earn our salvation, but, but to get closer to Jesus. I mean, do we really think about what he's done for us? Do we really think about what we were before he saved us? Are we moved by that? He says the door is narrow. Make every effort to get in. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you might be thinking, well, this sounds a little bit like another story I've I've heard before. Doesn't Jesus talk about a a wide road and and a narrow road? He does. It's a similar story, a similar premise. And and one of the things I think we have to be careful of with both of these stories, I think it's tempting to hear these stories and and assume that the people who are on the wide road, the people who are going through the wide door are are the atheists and the the heathens and and the partiers and the Christians are the ones on the narrow road going through the narrow door. I mean, the wide road is for those people that slept in this morning. The narrow road is for us that showed up, right? Keep in mind, in both stories, Jesus is talking primarily to religious people, to church people. He's not talking to people who hiss at the name of Jesus. He's not talking to people who worship the devil. That's not his audience. He's talking to us. And I think what he's saying is the wide and the narrow roads are in the church. The wide and the narrow doors are in this church. Well, I don't know everyone in this church. I think it's safe to assume that there are people in this church who will not pass through the narrow door. You see, there's a wide, easy religious door, and it leads to hell. And Jesus is warning us of that this morning. I mean, look back at the passage. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open for us. See, again, I think Jesus is warning us there are people who who, who think they're Christians, but they aren't. They have a false assurance. 
There were people in Jesus' day and there's people uh, in our day who look like Christians, who, who act like Christians. And in fact, they're so convinced themselves that when they show up, they're surprised that the door is shut. I mean, look at what they say, verse 26. Jesus, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. Again, they're saying, Jesus, wait a minute. We, We go to the temple. We, we offer the sacrifices. We're, we're descendants of Abraham. They do all the right things. You see, Jesus is talking here to people who went to prayer meetings, who went on mission trips, who, who worked in the nursery. And by all their outward appearances, by all their behaviors, these false Christians were indistinguishable from real Christians. Now, you might be thinking, well, how how could that be? I mean, listen, there are many people in the Bible who didn't follow Jesus, but they did Christian things. I mean, Caiaphas, the high priest who had Jesus killed, he he made a prophecy on behalf of God. In Acts, in the book of Acts, we're told about Simon, the, the sorcerer. I mean, even Balaam's donkey preached a sermon. It can happen. So Jesus is warning us here to check our hearts. Are are we really His? And He gives us a couple of clues, I think, a couple of some markers of of maybe falsely assured Christians. Number one, they have no first-hand knowledge of Jesus. I mean, in this passage, He says it, it, I believe, in Matthew 7 as well. I think it's the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. Jesus says, I never knew you. See, these people had ritual. They had religion, but they didn't have a relationship. They knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. They thought they did, but but they didn't. There's an old story about about an elegant elegant dinner party that was thrown in the Hamptons in the 1920s. It was in this beautiful big banquet hall, and everyone who was somebody was, was invited to come. The banquet hall was filled, and, and, and the host of the party hired this renowned orator to come, and he was going to entertain the crowd after their dinner, dinner was finished. And so after they had this fabulous meal, seven courses, when they're done, the orator gets up, and, and really he just, he just mesmerized the crowd. His voice was amazing. He began to recite poetry and, 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 and selections from famous speeches. And at the end of his, his presentation, he said, listen, before I go, I'll just... I'll take a suggestion from the crowd. If there's, if there's something you'd like to hear me uh, recite, just, just call it out. And an old man in the back of the room stood up and, and said, would you re- recite the, the 23rd Psalm? And the order said, sure, sure, I'll do that on one condition. He said that after I recite it, that you will recite it as well. So the old gentleman nodded and, and sat back down in his seat. And so the order began in this, again, this amazing voice that resonated throughout this whole banquet hall. He started, he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. And he goes on and finishes the psalm, and there is thunderous applause. The people all stand, standing ovation. And when the people quiet down, he has them 
take a seat, and he points to the old man in the back, and he says, okay, sir, now, now your turn. And the old man stands up, and with a, with a trembling voice that's sort of cracked by time, he begins to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And when he finishes speaking, there, there are no applause. But neither was there a dry eye in the room. And so when the night was over, someone comes up to this order and they said, listen, what, what just happened there? Can you explain? What, what's the difference between the responses that you guys got? And the order thought for a moment and he said, well, I knew the psalm, but that man knows the shepherd. And that makes all the difference. You see, it's not enough to know about Jesus. We have to know him if we're going to love him. You see, I think this crowd, they served God, but, but my sense is they served him not, not out of love for him, but out of what they thought they would get from him. They thought if they went through the rituals that God would give them a, a better life, at least save them from hell. Again, what about you? Why, why do you serve God? Do you serve him to get something in return? Do you do it so that others see it, so you can check some boxes, or do you do it because you love him? Do you know the psalm, or do you know the shepherd? The other one is, look at verse 27, look what Jesus says. He says they are evil. Now, I know we said earlier, we said these were moral people. They were, they were checking the boxes. They were doing the right thing. So how, how could they be evil? Listen, I, I don't know for sure my... my my thought is what Jesus might mean is that they had just compartmentalized their faith. They, they had made Jesus Lord of, of most of their life, but not all of their life. I mean, maybe, maybe they'd even given him like nine-tenths of their life. But you see, if, if they were choosing which tenth to hold on to, then, then they're really maintaining control, right? I mean, think about this. What, what if I told my wife, what if I said, listen, honey, um, there are 168 hours in the week. Uh, so I'm going to let you be my wife for 166 of those, and then two hours a week I'm going to be single. How do you think that's going to work out for me? I mean, what kind of relationship would that be? Jesus is worthy of all of our affections, right? He's worthy of all of our hearts, all of our lives, and in fact, that's what he commands from us. J.D. Greer says this, he says, if Jesus is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. So just be honest with yourself for a moment. I mean, is Jesus really the Lord of, of your whole life? Is, is Jesus really the Lord of your career? Is Jesus really the Lord of your, of your money? Is he the Lord of your relationships, of your, of your kids, of your schedule, of your morality? Is he Lord of all of that? Because if he's not Lord of all those things, he's not really Lord. I mean, maybe just ask yourself, what, what areas of my life am I still clinging to? What am I still holding on to? Where, where do I give Jesus the Heisman and just, just push him away, keep him at arm's length? Jesus says, make every effort. Now, don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the only people who are saved are the ones who have it altogether. I'm not saying that the only people who are true Christians are those that, that have it all together. 
That would rule all of us out. I mean, as I was preparing the sermon, God was just exposing areas in my life where, where I still want to maintain some control. I had to repent as I was preaching this to myself this week. I'm not saying you have to have it all together, but what I am saying is that you have to acknowledge that Jesus' claim over your life is total. No part is off limits. Sure, sure you're going to make mistakes. Sure, you're going to screw up and you're going to need lots of work, but you recognize that His Lordship is total. And that as He exposes those areas, that then you're going to confess. You're going to ask for forgiveness and then ask Him to take over and help you make Him the Lord of all of those things. So do you know Him like that? Listen, you... You could be really outwardly religious, right? I mean, you could pray the sinner's prayer hundreds of times. You could have Billy Graham's autograph in your Bible. You could be baptized in the Jordan River. But if you don't know him, he's going to say to you, I never knew you. And I don't say that to frighten or to confuse you. I say that to warn you because I think this passage is a warning We all need to evaluate our relationship with Jesus. He says the door is narrow and it's not going to be open forever. So don't miss the opportunity. Jesus actually has one more thing to say in response to the question. And again, this is what makes me think. We don't know the motivation behind the question, but I think the way Jesus responds here, it leads me to believe that that he knows there's some pride in this guy's heart that asked the question. And if you think the passage has been difficult so far, get ready. Um, because Jesus is going to say something now that I'm guessing would have surely caused an an uproar in the crowd. I I think what he wants the questioner and what he wants the crowd to know is that you're going to be surprised by who's in the kingdom. Now remember, the Jews are God's chosen people. Unfortunately, what that had caused them to think was that they had a monopoly on salvation. They thought they were superior to everyone else. And so when Jesus says in verse 29, they will come from east and west and north and south. I mean, this must have just rocked their world. Because essentially what he's saying is that the Gentiles are going to be in the kingdom of God. Israel's most hated enemies are going to be a part of his kingdom. And I think when he's saying this, Jesus is just exposing the self-righteousness in their hearts. Because again, their temptation was to think that they they were better than everyone else. And Jesus wants to just obliterate that lie. Because I think we're tempted to believe that as well. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. Maybe, maybe you don't struggle here, but this is where the Lord is working on me significantly. Um, I mean, I would, never, I would never say out loud that I'm better than anyone else. I know that's not true. But there are times I'm tempted in my heart to think that I am, to look down on someone else when they don't behave the way that I think they should. And it can happen so quickly. And listen, I'll just confess, it's not the world that causes me uh, that many problems. Um, When people don't walk with Jesus, I don't expect them to live like Christians. But when I see Christians doing stupid things, saying crazy things on social media, being self-righteous, 
I don't have much grace for them. And then I, then I start to look down on them. And then I become self-righteous too. This is my favorite definition of self-righteousness. It gets me every time. It's looking down on someone else because they sin differently than you. Man, is that easy to do. It's so easy, right, to dismiss our own sin, but to see it in someone else, to see their sin. It's the whole log and the speck. I mean, just think for a minute. Do you, do you ever watch the news? Um, and you see something on there and you think, man, those people, they got it coming. I mean, they, they made their bed. They got to they lie in it now. Or what, what's your attitude towards people who are living immoral lives? What's your attitude towards people who believe the exact opposite from you? On a hot-button issue, they believe exactly the opposite of you. What is your attitude towards them? Do you look down on them? Anne Lamott says this. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. Just let that one sink in for a minute. Church, I think we have some repenting to do. We've made enemies out of other image bearers. We've demeaned and judged and looked down on people just because they think differently than us. Just because they vote differently than us. Just because they, they didn't like our social media post. I think what Jesus is saying to the crowd and what he's saying to us too is, you're going to be surprised by who's in the kingdom. I mean, just think about your worst enemy. Think about someone whose life is just antithetical to God. Think about the last person you can imagine being in the kingdom. Jesus says they're going to come from east and west and north and south. All those people you didn't think were going to get in, Jesus says, guess what? They're getting in. Liberals. Conservatives, Republicans, Democrats, vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, they're all getting in if they repent and believe in Jesus. And listen, church, that is good news. I hope you see that this morning. I mean, I'll say this as lovingly as I can, but you need forgiveness as much as they do. And so do I. It's been said that good preaching should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable I think that's what Jesus does in this last verse. Look at verse 30. He says, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Listen, if you're here this morning and you feel like, man, I will never make it, then verse 30 is for you. It's a welcome. And if you're here this morning and you feel like you've already made it, verse 30 is also for you. And it's a warning. Regardless if you think you're first or last this morning, our response needs to be the same. He says, the last will be first and the first will be last. It's a welcome and a warning. I think we've covered the warnings enough. If you, if you think you can earn your favor by your actions, if you think you're better than others, or even if you think maybe I'll just try and pretend to be last so that I can be first, then you're a first person and this warning's for you. And your response is to Repent. But the good news of the gospel is the welcome. 
Jesus says the last will be first. I mean, just think about the people that Jesus came to save. He, he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick, right? He came to save sinners. That's what we are. I think my favorite title of Jesus, and the people who gave him this title, they actually gave him this title sort of as, as a term of derision. They thought they were criticizing Jesus, but I think it's actually the most beautiful thing ever said about him. Jesus is called a friend of sinners. It's who he is. Dane Orton says this. He says, time and again, it is the morally disgusting the socially reviled, the inexcusable and the undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Jesus most naturally gravitates. It's who he is. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. And whoever enters by me will be saved. The door is narrow, church, but everyone is welcome. And the only qualification is just to admit that you're not qualified. Again, maybe you're here today and you think, man, I've just blown it for the hundredth time. There's no way that God could ever forgive me again. Listen, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. He doesn't look at you with a pointed finger, but with open arms. Church, my hope this morning is that that we can just be honest with ourselves, to look at our own hearts and just admit we're last. And I know in our culture that goes against everything, right? We strive to be first in everything, but listen, just admit it. We're, We're last. We're not qualified. And the good news is Jesus says, come on, you're who I came for. He sought us when we were helpless, alone, guilty. He showed us mercy that we didn't deserve. And all of us, everyone in this room, we need His grace. And in His beautiful upside-down kingdom, He welcomes us with it today. He says the last will be first. So be surprised by that. Be, Be amazed by that, that the God of the universe would come down and become like us to seek us out, to offer us forgiveness, to offer us life, to offer us eternal life. He is the narrow door. And He welcomes you in. I mean, what an opportunity. What a Savior. So let me pray for us. Father, thank You that You, wow, that You welcome us. We are so undeserving. God, if we have any notion in our hearts that we think we are even slightly deserving, would you humble us this morning? Remind us that we aren't. And that that's good news because we're the people that you came for. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning just wiltering under the weight of sin, Lord, that you would lift that burden, that you remind them, that you love them, that you forgive them, and that they are welcome too. And Lord, if any of us hold something left in our hearts that we're, we have an inkling that we, that we deserve this, would you gently, mercifully, um, but would you expose that in our hearts and allow us to repent? You're worthy, Lord, and we're grateful for your love for us. Amen.